Hi, good morning. How you doing? We're back with another Sup FM podcast, and this time we're interviewing Evelyn O'Doherty for all the way from New York. And it's really cool to chat to her about um, Startup Journal, which has been her baby for quite a few years now. And she, well, you know, you're going to hear the story how she started it. It's uh, it's quite fun, and Evelyn is really good fun. I really enjoyed. Um, chatting to her and there's so much I mean obviously she's like that's one of the biggest brands online and in print about standout paddle so most people get their news from there um, and it's really interesting to hear the backstory Aloha and welcome to SUP FM the podcast for stand-up paddle boarders everywhere so with no further ado let's get out on the water and on with the show here are your hosts Nick and Simon. Hi, Evelyn. Thanks so much for joining us on the Supper Fan Podcast. Nick, it is awesome to be here today. It's We've talked about getting together to chat for quite a while now, and, uh, and I just think this is perfect timing, and I'm super excited to share what's up and coming and just chat with you a bit about the state of the state of stand-up paddling, man. Like, it's it's all looking good from this perspective. Yeah, it's going pretty crazy. And it's, it's awesome to chat to you as well because we, a long time ago, about like five years ago, we interviewed Adam Champagne. And I'm not even sure, is he still with the journal? Uh, alas, I can't believe you just mentioned Adam's name. No, Adam is no longer <laughs> with the journal and it is still a devastating loss. I mean, he, he literally taught me everything I know about the magazine before I took over. He is the backbone of why we were successful in that transfer. And uh, he left to build his own media company. And I just, I can't say enough about the guy. If anybody has an opportunity to work with Adam, they should. He's a, he's a brilliant technician, you know, behind the scenes on, on web uh, development. And he's also just a stand-up character. What a great guy. Excellent. Um, yeah, he was, he was a great guy to chat to all those years ago. But um, over to you. So now with a surname like Odority, hopefully I pronounced that right. You did. Um, <laughs> can you trace your Irish ancestry or have you? Uh, I, I haven't. I'm so called out on that. I haven't actually traced it uh, yet, although it is something that I, I plan to do, you know, in all my spare time. Haha. <laughs> But I have, uh, you know, I know my family originally originates in Dublin and my grandmother's maiden name was Kelly. And quite honestly, that sort of is where I, I, I get overwhelmed at the thought of tracing my, my Irish heritage. Because once you, once you land on a Mary Kelly, which is my grandmother's name, it just gets really uh, abundant, you know. So there's a lot of sifting to be done. So I, I, haven't, I haven't traced it yet, but it is... Um, it's definitely on my radar. Because I looked up the Doherty clan just before doing a little bit of research for this um, for this podcast, and then uh, I found this place called Carrickabraggy Castle right in the north of Ireland, and it looks amazing. It's right on the ocean. It looks like an amazing place to paddle around. Uh, I just love the name of it, the Carrickabraggy Castle of the O'Doherty clan. Like, hell yes, I need to go visit that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you have to, yeah. So can you recall the beginnings of your SUP journey way back in 2007? I mean, let's talk about your first SUP race. What was it like on the start line? Oh, Nick. So I, um, there's a lot of good stories there, but my, my first SUP race ever was uh, the Rincon Beach Boy, uh, probably probably around 2007, 2008. I'd have to, I'd have to look up the dates. Uh, and it was, it was sort of a, a wonderful time for me because I had – had friends 
actually sponsored me, like got together and decided they wanted me to run in this race, you know, to, to paddle in this race. And they bought my plane ticket and they, uh, they registered me for the race. And they pretty much, they sent me down to Puerto Rico to participate in my first stand-up paddle race. And, uh, and I've, I've been going back and forth to Puerto Rico for years. So it was, you know, just a pure joy to be able to do it. And, and I went, that was my first trip I've ever taken, I think, completely solo, just, you know, in terms of stand-up paddle racing. And, wow. uh, and I got down there um, in the middle of the night, you know, the flights get in at like three o'clock in the morning and I had my rental car and I had nowhere to go because the uh, place I was renting wasn't open yet. So I wound up like sleeping in a church parking lot and, you know, waking up and figuring it all out. But what happened in that race was um, I was on the start line. I was absolutely terrified, but the fact that I was not, I was not known in any way, shape or form, like gave me this incredible freedom. Like I was just so excited to participate, to be a part of this. And, and also the Rincon Beach Boy also benefits a really beautiful cause. And I was just really just proud that my friends had sent me and that I got to participate in this cause and be a part of this incredible experience, which I'd never been on before. And, uh, and it's an eight mile open ocean race. And anybody who knows me knows that like just open ocean is completely my jam. I'm so just in love with it. And, uh, and I completed the race and I thought it was amazing. And I went back to my hotel room, right? I was like, Oh, that was great. I'm going to go home and change for the party. And I had a couple of people I knew were there and somebody called me and was like, Evelyn, where are you? I'm like, Oh, I'm at the hotel. And he's like, uh, they're calling your name like you're supposed to be up on the podium you know like and there's money like they're like you won something you know and uh and I literally was had no clue I had no clue even what that meant and I just went running back down there and it was too late I'd missed my epic podium moment but um but I'd come in fourth in my division you know and they had they handed me a check for like 125 dollars and I just I've never been more excited about anything in my entire life and and right from that moment I've been completely hooked you know like there's just no going back after just a complete you know mind-blowing experience like that wow what a start I mean there's obviously you must have been um, paddling before that right so when did you first step on a board uh yeah I'd been paddling for a few years before that um so the first time I stepped on a board uh I was I was injured I had a, a neck uh, like a, a nerve in my neck was really firing um, due to a bone spur I had in my neck and I wasn't able to surf. And, you know, surfing is sort of, you know, it's like my everything. It's like where I get my joy and my exercise. And, and I was so miserable. It was a whole summer. It just wouldn't get better. And I was so miserable um, sitting on the beach, not being able to do what I wanted that a friend of mine finally took pity on me and was like, you need to try stand up paddleboarding. And at first I thought, I said to even said to him, I'm like, oh no, like I'm a surfer. <laughs> you know, I'm a You'll never get me on one of those things. And uh, but I was literally, I was miserable enough that uh, I did. And he he was amazing. He took me out on a couple of great paddles. The first one was on Georgia Capond here in East Hampton, New York, which uh, is some of the most prime time real estate, you know, maybe in the world. Like it's just a very beautiful body of water you know, surrounded by just magnificent homes, some of which are castles and, and you can paddle across the pond and 
go into the ocean, which we did. And I mean, he just blew my mind with the whole experience. And, and it also allowed me a way to get on the water and get my get my fix, you know, get my connection to the water back without um, without exacerbating my neck. And and the interesting part of it was, you know, as with anything I love, like once I take to it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm all in, I'm completely, I'm doing it, you know, three times a day for two hours at a clip. And, and, uh, and I, I became so strong from paddling specifically my core became so um, just strengthened from all the paddling I was doing that it actually shifted my posture a little bit, like lifted my posture and it released the, uh, the nerve in my neck. And um, it's sort of a miracle cure. And to this day, I've never, I've never had that issue again. Like I had three surgeons telling me they needed to, you know, cut me and put in plates and all this stuff. And, and instead I started paddleboarding and it's never, this is a true story. It's never bothered me since. <laughs> wow. The best medicine ever. Ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but now, so when did Stan Paddle come to New York? Cause I mean, that must've been about 2005 and, and I've been chatting to some guys in California and they were saying that it kind of started about 2006, 2007, but it's, it was been around in Hawaii for a long time before that. Right. Of so, course. Yeah. Yeah. So the New York sub scene, um, we were maybe at first around two or three years behind California in terms of its growth and popularity. Um, so we there, we were paddling here in 2008, um, but it, it wasn't nearly as dominant as it is today. And so I was, as a paddler, I was one of a like stoked crew, like a small crew of people. And, um, and that has grown, you know, we, we don't have the benefit of warm water, you know, 12 months a year here. So it's a sort of a select crew that continues to paddle after Labor Day, uh, which is, you know, the beginning of September for us. And, and that crew is even smaller for people who want to paddle year round, right? Like really push the envelope and, and get out there in January and February and March, which, you know, it's, it's just flipping cold, you know? So, um, so what's great about the New York crew is we're tight, you know, everybody knows everybody, everybody is there. There's not a, there's healthy competition and there's healthy sort of razzing, but in the end, like I've never been to an event where anybody is anything but completely enthusiastic, you know, and passionate to see each other. And, and uh, you know, we leave the competition on the water. Is there like an organization? I mean, do you guys have a Facebook group and stuff and you all get together and paddle together or is it just? Well, just one, of, one of the things that I, I really wish for, Nick, is, is that we had an overriding body here in the Northeast, you know, some sort of uh, just something like that, a group, you know, because we do have a Facebook group, but there's like everybody has a Facebook group, you know, like I have, I started one for paddling here in the Hamptons uh, on the Eastern tip of Long Island. And that was the only one for a long time. And then uh, other groups have popped up and now there's Facebook groups for like paddling in Connecticut and paddling up the Island towards New York city and paddling, you know, all over. And, and it's sort of, um, you know, the unity of it all has Splintered as everybody's like sort of hyper focused on their own locale, which is disappointing. You know, if if we talked more about paddling in other places, we could. Con I feel like we could continue to grow this sport, you know, and, and experience, um, you know, just that that energy that happens when somebody says like, "What are all you guys doing?" and "How do I get a chance to do that?" and 
you know, because part of what is so beneficial about stand-up paddling is, is the camaraderie, right? Is our, is the energy of the, the social group and the, and the athletes coming together. So we do, we have a, we have a good New York scene. I, I, I know you, um, you mentioned something about the, the races and here we have, uh, the, the big one that I love the most is called, um, Sea Paddle New York City. Um, so it's S E A paddle N Y C. And that's literally, it's a 24 mile circumnavigation around the Island of Manhattan. And, uh, and that's, that hap- that goes every year, not this year due to COVID, but Sea Paddle New York City is a, is a big race. It, um, draws a lot of big talent. We've had Kai Lenny and Chase Kosterlitz and Seychelles and, you know, a lot of different, um, a lot of different individuals come for that. Is it the same race that's been transformed into the APP World Tour or not? No. So, right. So the Sea Paddle New York City has been, has been around for a lot longer. Um, you know, I think it's in its 12th year or something like that, you know, in terms of doing this one race around Manhattan. And I know the APP World Tour did contact Sea Paddle to see if they could uh, come together in that. And it just the logistics of it, because Sea Paddle is a is a at its heart, it's a fundraiser and they weren't willing to um, give that up, you know, because there, there are causes that depend on it. So the APP World Tour created its own course uh, when it was here for the last couple of years, couple of seasons. And that course was different from the one in the Sea Paddle New York City, but they both involve paddling on the Hudson, which is amazing. Gotcha. And obviously there must be lots of little paddles and, and you know, local local races and get-togethers and stuff all around the Hamptons and Long Island, I suppose. There are. And, and then, you know, again, it's something that, you know, we need to just sort of monitor the growth of this sport because um, there were there used to be like a set series of like four races that everybody went to. And then, uh, and that included um, out here, the big one was the Hamptons Paddle for the Pink, which uh, it, it, I don't think it's, I don't think it, that's still in the, sort of manifestation stage but what what it was that one was hilarious because it tapped into all the sort of the hedge fund and the celebrities and you know the people that make the hamptons this you know sort of high-end resort experience and uh and those people would be on the water and and most of them you know can't paddle for it worth a dime but, um, <laughs> but it was great to have them and and what they would do is donate to the cause and that was amazing right so that was a beautiful event that had just a lot of different fun elements to it. And then uh, I have a great friend who owns a shop in Babylon who puts on a race every year called Race for the Great South Bay. And and that also has maybe, you know, over 100 people every year and growing, um, you know, on the, on this, you know, the Great South Bay there in, uh, uh, is that Nassau County? It might be Nassau County. Um, Anyway, so there are, there are plenty of races around, but what I find too is now everybody's popping up and creating their own event and that it just diminishes, you know, the impact of all the events when people are now forced to choose between X and Y on a particular weekend. I mean, there is that obviously, but um, like, for example, on the flip side of the coin down here in the Algarve in Portugal, we have no local races. I think there's one every year where the, the Portugal sub-series comes down and, and they do a race here. But there's no sort of small local races at all, and there's hardly anybody interacting. So we're trying to – I'm trying to grow this up and, and get a whole bunch of guys together um, to start doing little paddles and you know, just try and grow it because – 
when we interviewed, you mentioned Chase Kostlitz earlier, we interviewed him a while back, five years ago, and he was saying the best way to promote things is to to start little races and, and do it. But I suppose you guys have got the flip side of the coin there if there's too many races in New York. Yeah, I mean, it's it, I, and I don't want to sound in any way, you know, um, negative about it because it is wonderful that so many people are so excited that they want to put on their own event. I only I just have the suggestion, you know, that we check with each other on, yeah. you know, there's only eight weekends or, you know, whatever it is, eight, yeah, eight weekends during the course of a New York summer. So like, let's spread them out. <laughs> That's all. Yeah, you know, coordinate, I guess. Yeah, yeah, like nobody has a race in the beginning of July, but they're all packed into the first couple of weeks of August. And it's a problem, you know, it's just, there's too much happening. And if we could just all agree to support each other by, you know, I'll come to yours if you come to mine. And, you know, and that kind of communication, it would just, I think it would just help develop the growth of the sport as a whole. And also something interesting to note, I think for everyone out there is that people are not shy of getting up at 6am in the middle of a winter's morning. Like look at Paris, for example, it's the the biggest, (laughs) biggest event in the world. I think there's about a thousand people paddling there. And that is freezing cold. Um, it's freezing, and, yeah. And then there's been, the Glagla race as well, in, 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 in where is it Austria or something? As well. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all these super cold races, people get out and do it. It's crazy. I mean, you know, it's uh, so people can do it out of summer, out of Paddler, season. Paddlers are, I mean, water people, not just paddlers. You know, are passionate people, right? And and given the opportunity to do something as a group, even if it's a little bit extreme, I think opens the gateway, you know, for people paddling and, you know, places like Paris and, and uh, the Glagla race and, you know, and anywhere really. I mean, I was at the Paris race two years ago with the APP World Tour and I was stunned, stunned by how many people were down on that, you know, on that um, patio getting ready to enter into the water. I just, I couldn't believe it. It was like 4.30, 4.45 in the morning and it, the place was just packed with crazy Parisians. It was amazing. It was fantastic. Yeah, it's crazy, crazy, crazy. Okay, but let's get to the stand-up journal because that's obviously the the major feature of this episode. Um, And we realized that you were working for Clay Feeter at the stand-up journal when when you took over. So how did that whole story start? Did he come to you one day and say, oh, that's it, I had enough. Do you want to do it, Evelyn? Or or how did Mm -hmm. that, that play out? Well, it was it was never my intention uh, <laughs> to become a magazine publisher, right? That's how the best things in life happen. Uh, but uh, when I started working for Clay in 2016, uh, I was hired as the online editor, and that's where I met Adam Champagne and, and just have so much respect for him. Um, and I quickly became so involved in the magazine. Uh, you know, I was doing the online editorship, but then I was also making suggestions about what might work better for the print magazine. And, and then I was having conversations with, you know, uh, advertisers. So I was beginning to develop that side of things, like bringing in advertisers to the magazine. So I, I kind of became this larger entity than my role had originally um, hired me to be. And so it was almost like a natural progression. And, and one day, uh, Clay, you know, just let me know that, you know, Stand Up Journal was for sale. And would I be interested? And, and my first reaction was like, oh, no, like, that's not that's not for me. You know, <laughs> I just I'm, I like my job, like I like what I'm doing. And um, 
but he was serious about selling it. And I realized that it could go to somebody else. And if it went to somebody else, then all these things that I was, I get to do, you know, would be at risk. Like somebody else might just cut me loose and say, I'm sorry, we're bringing in a whole new team. And uh, anyway, so this is sort of a a, a wonderful story. I was down in Puerto Rico with um, a good friend of mine, Russ Scully, and we were, it was the surf had gone to, you know, to crap and, and we were just sort of floating around on our boards. And I was telling him this opportunity, like I was stuck. I didn't know what to do. And, and uh, as I told him about the magazine becoming available, like Russ's eyes began to shine and light up. And he was like, Ev, he's like, Ev, not for anything, but like, you are magic for this job. Like he goes, it, it is you. It's, it's everything. He goes, so if you want to do it, he goes, I want to do it with you. And that was it. I was like, if I have a team like my friend Russ and, you know, other folks, like I'm in, I'm going to, I'm just going to take the leap. And so we did, we went back to clay and we made a, an offer, which was, um, you know, and that took some negotiating. Uh, and then eventually we came to an agreement and, uh, you know, my team took over in October of 2018. So it's been two full years now. Okay. And how, I mean, that must have been quite an interesting transformation or, or was it just smooth as butter? <laughs> no, it was bumpy. <laughs> it was bumpy. I mean, because ultimately, I mean, you know, my experience in publishing is I was an eighth grade English teacher, right? I, I worked in the public schools out here for many, many years. And I knew what I knew from my experience working with Clay And at first, Clay wanted to be a part of the new journal, and he wanted to um, sort of mentor me into this new role. And then on the other side, you know, I had Russ and my team with uh, Jeff Henderson, and those guys have a have a lot of media background. They have some publishing background. They have uh, uh, graphic design. You know, they're they're just highly skilled guys in their in their field, and they were chomping at the bit to really create something new, like to, to build something new. And so I was sort of stuck in the middle, like here's clay and the foundation and the tradition and everything he's built. And here's these two rabid watermen who are just can't wait to get, you know, going on this new entity. And um, so in the end, I, you know, I just, you know, I thanked clay, you know, for, for all his years of wisdom. And, and we just decided that we would step out on our own and, uh, and we figured it out. You know what I mean? Like we, it was, you know, it was a little bumpy sometimes, but ultimately it wasn't uh, rocket science. And, and we were able to just, you know, find our way into what we needed to do and the, you know, get in touch with the photographers. And, and we began to build something that we call Stand Up Journal 2.0 because it's it's pr- it's pretty different, you know, from uh, the original. Yeah. And it just from an, from an outside perspective, I mean, I don't have the the ability to lay my hands on one of your awesome magazines itself, but um, you know I've seen it online and it's just grow, 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 grow. It's been amazing. So, just Thank for you. a bit of perspective, how big is Stand Up Journal? Like, how many readers? How many people work there, etc. And and where do you distribute? So, uh, so that's the um, the running joke is you know everybody thinks I live in Maui uh, and I'm you know and I'm here I'm here in New York I guess I'm in New York. My team, uh, you know, I had, so there's four of us that are full-time members of the staff at Stand Up Journal. It's myself here in New York. Uh, Russ Scully is my associate publisher. Jeffrey Henderson is our creative director. Both of those gentlemen live in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, and then our subscription manager, Adina Bowdry, lives in, uh, lives in Hampton, New Hampshire. So the four of us are in the Northeast here in the United States. 
And then we have a ton of contributors, right? So we run the bulk and the mass of the journal, but we have outside, um, you know, outside writers and photographers and, you know, just a ton of stuff going on that, that we funnel into the print, what you see is the print magazine and the online, uh, the online blog. So uh, the magazine itself, we have a North American distribution at the moment, and I'll get into that in a second. Uh, so we are on newsstands in the United States and Canada, and that distribution is 11,000 issues quarterly. And beyond that, we also have a growing global subscription base, right? So you can subscribe to the magazine from all over the world and we'll ship it to you. And that magazine and that subscriber base has grown by 300% since we took over. So it's, um, you know, people like having the magazine delivered right into their into their front door and, and having the experience personalized to them. But the, yeah, it's really, I, I think our subscriber base is like the most stoked crew on the planet. Like it's just amazing how loyal people are. And part of that is, is the, you know, the product that we supply is not just any magazine. It's a, it's a coffee table edition, right? It's a, it's a perfect bound, you know, image rich, dripping with, you know, energy and stoke uh, magazine that that you collect, you know, that you save and you savor, um, you know, long after, you know, the time of that newsstand life. And uh, one of the things we're very excited about is starting in spring 2021, Stand Up Journal for the first time is finally going to start a newsstand distribution in the UK. And yeah, uh, yeah big yay. <laughs> And why? Does that mean Europe too? I suppose. Uh, I'm I'm gonna look into that. I mean, my yeah, actually, that's a good question. That's a good question. Well, I guess I mean Europe forms part of the global distribution, doesn't it? Because you know there's so few English speakers in Europe. I don't know if it would make sense, but anyway, sorry, that's your business. Uh, no, no, I, I, I'm I'm with you 100 percent on that. I I have to go back to my newsstand consultant to find out you know, and we will you know when we get closer to spring 2021 to find out exactly where those magazines will be distributed. Um, yeah, but I would I would hope it would be, you know, in a couple of different countries. And yeah, because they're pockets of expats, you know, English expats all the way around Europe. And it's, um, of course, it'd be great to have the Central Cafe carrying your magazine. It'd be amazing. Yeah, I know. And then, you know, and then hopefully that will just grow. So that's that's the game plan. I mean, I would love to get it distributed in Australia and New Zealand as well. You know, so we have we have a global perspective and and uh, and we're just going to work our way towards it. You know, we're, we're literally just on a daily basis, just trying to move the button, you know, a little further to see to see where the magazine. But I love the fact that you commented on, on how it's like a coffee table magazine because the Internet has really decimated so many you know, print publications. Um, but personally, yeah. I've always held the belief that great quality physical magazines will diminish radically, but never completely disappear if they're good enough. So I guess it's kind of like, you know, retro records or vinyl or special luxurious to read a good quality coffee table magazine. So how would you describe how you held up against the digital onslaught? Because it must have been really hard at times for you to think digital or, or did that not really play a role? In oh, for sure. Oh, Nick, for sure. It um you know, we've definitely been affected by the digital revolution. Um, but, you know, the team and I are, we're so, we're so in agreement 
about how the power of print, the actual you know experience of holding a magazine in your hands and and opening up the photos and those glorious two page spreads that just you know just fall off the paper pretty much. It's a very different visceral experience than what you see on your computer screen, which you either swipe or you click away. Like it's there and then it's gone again, you know. And and uh, and I just I just <clears throat> personally feel that print publications are read uh, more consciously than like an online article where you just sort of skim and you look for the information that you're looking for. <clears throat> People who are committed to print really are a part of the experience with us. And, and one of the things that, I, that digital cannot do is, you know, when you open up Stand Up Journal and there's, we have multiple, you know, two page spreads and these, you know, just big fat photographs all through the magazine that jump off the page. When the experience for me is like you open that up and you call your buddy over and you say, hey, man, like, look at this, you know, look at this. And then the two of you are, you know, you know, hunched over the magazine, looking at it, having that interaction, having that stoke fest. And, and that does not happen in the digital world. And, and you can me, read it outdoors, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. You can read it outdoors. And I have a, I have a, a good friend who gave us the best compliment the other day. Um, she works in Manhattan in an office. And she just said, your magazine gives me the ability to be on the water when I can't physically get there. And I was like, yep, that's why we're doing what we're doing. That's it. <laughs> that's wonderful. That's lovely. But I love the fact that Stand Up Journal seems to be about everyone who paddles, not just the elite. I mean, there's so many corners of the internet dedicated to racing, and, and that's what it's all about. But here at SUP FM, we've tried to focus our podcast on the 70% of paddlers who just enjoy a leisurely trip out, and, and we're trying to inspire them to do more. So do you share that mission? 100%. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it's very easy to fall into the trap of being a, a, a competitive sports magazine, which stand-up paddling as a sport, just simply, it, it, we have that. We're blessed, right, with those top-tier athletes, Connor Baxter and Daniel Hughes and others like that. But that's not the that's not the full tribe. That's not the full scope of the um, recreational stand-up paddle border. And, uh, and I am, I am hyper vigilant to, you know, creating what we call like evergreen content or content that appeals to, um, you know, the everyday water man, the everyday water woman, you know, so we're not just uh, we're not just looking at competitive sports. We're not looking at high-end sports. Like I love the wing foil and and all of that. And and we definitely cover and and want to celebrate these new innovations in um, you know in the progress of water sports. But that what we really want to stay grounded in is the everyday paddler and offering content on travel tips and gear. And, you know, we're working on our winter issue right now. And we're going to talk about like, what do you need to keep paddling in colder and colder temps? Like what is the gear that people are using and how do you keep yourself safe in, a, in an experience like cold water paddling? And mm, That's brilliant. Well, someone once said, I think it was Randall Fiennes, actually, who was a big explorer in the United Kingdom. He said, uh, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad gear. I love that. That's one of my favorite expressions. I can't believe yeah, you said I love it that. Too. <laughs> yeah, it's all about the gear. And and if you're if you're a rabid paddler, which almost all of us are, you're, you get interested in the gear, you know, and once you're interested in the gear, you find out you can do anything. 
You know, now there's dry suits and sup suits and wetsuit booties. Like you can just go. We can do it. We can do it. Maybe the paddles are shorter. Maybe you don't go as far offshore. But, um, I, you know, I've been out there in the middle of winter here in East Hampton, New York, with literally with ice flows going by and felt just such freedom and such energy and joy, you know, from that experience, from being out on the water in a in a time when most people wouldn't dare to step offshore. Yeah, and you feel so special because everyone else is sitting inside watching television and you're outside enjoying the elements. So I think, Breathing, I think that's an amazing yes. thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's another thing which I, which I love about the magazines, that you've got a section on the environment. Um, so was that always there or did you bring that in? Uh, I'm responsible for bringing that in. When I, when I first started working for the magazine Under Clay, one of the first things I did was I created a, a category online and started um, deliberately soliciting content about the environment. And one of the reasons for that is I feel that any water sportsman or sportswoman we are naturally uh, inclined to be passionate about the environment because that's our playground, right? That's where we go to get our, you know, to get our fix, so to speak, and, and to be a part of that immersive experience in nature. So why not tap into that energy and just use, you know, celebrate that as a way to get more people educated about what's happening in the environment? And um, and we've been explosively popular in that direction. You know, it's just been it's just been amazing. And and all the uh, it also gives us a chance to celebrate all the wonderful fundraisers that are happening as a result of stand up paddling that are in support of, you know, reclaiming the environment or protecting, preserving the environment. And again, it's about just about educating, you know, just raising people's awareness a little bit at a time. Uh, you know, my experience is, is if I can get you down to the water with me, right? That's the whole game. Like get you down to the water with me, get you on a board, like show you things from that perspective, right? My perspective of being on the water and looking at the world from there, chances are you're going to feel that, right? You're going to feel that. And my hope is you're going to fall in love with it because once you do, now you're inclined to protect it. Absolutely, yeah, that's so true, and 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 it's been true for me personally as well. I mean, the more I paddle over the last ten years, the more I, you know, I, I sort of the more I care for the environment, the more I want to, more I want to protect it and care for it. And, and it's shocking to see some of the stuff. Luckily, here in Portugal is not so bad, but I mean, I've seen some pretty pretty gnarly places with plastic piled up, and it's it's not great to see that. And um, it's fascinating to see some individuals around there. We interviewed a guy called the Sup Garbage Man down in Washington, yeah. and. Mm -hmm. and uh, it was great. It was wonderful to see him going out there, taking it on himself to clean up everyone else's garbage and, and just shine a light for everyone else. So there's there's so many initiatives out there, which is great. It's really exciting. Yeah. Paddlers are, are exciting people and, and very much movers and shakers in, with regard to the environment. It's it's just a wonderful part of the entirety to be, you know, that we get to experience here. Okay, Evelyn, you're a super experienced paddler. What's your top tip for paddling safety? I don't know if I'm super experienced, but I am. <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely out there in, in every imaginable condition. So uh, my top tip is easy. It's just don't paddle further offshore than you're capable of swimming back. And that distance changes according to conditions, right? So just don't paddle further out than you can swim back in any weather. So that's my number one. 
right? Like don't depend on your board or your PFD at all. Like it's you putting yourself out there. Make sure you can get back. Have you ever had to swim back? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Know, yeah, sure. So I'm a I'm a sup surfer as well as a as a you know flat water paddler and racer. And I've um I've I've lost my boards in all sorts of crazy conditions, and it can be it can be eye opening how quickly that happens. You know, so it's just that ability to you know read water and understand your your limits you know and and know how to get yourself to safety because i'm also a big proponent is in you know if i'm out there i don't want to put somebody else at risk who has to come save me you know like if i put myself out there i need to be responsible for getting myself in and uh yeah so i take that stuff pretty seriously we've been quite alarmed after lockdown seeing how many new paddlers have come on board and or, you know come out in the water, which is which is wonderful because it shows you know that the industry is growing and, and stand up paddle is growing as a sport. But a lot of people have no clue about the conditions and the environment. Um, does that concern you? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. We um, we have the same thing here in the states that lockdown brought a lot of people to stand up paddling, which is wonderful. But not a lot of those people actually even knew that there was a PFD law. You know, our Coast Guard, it's a requirement. You have to have one. And uh, and some people, a lot of people didn't even know. Um, and others knew and deliberately didn't care, which is a big concern, you know. So, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff, we're, we're lucky where I live. We have a Marine Patrol that will just, will just write you up a ticket. And it's a $200 ticket, you know, if you don't have a PFD. So, but at the same time, just constantly alerting paddlers to the importance, you know, of self-safety is is paramount. Yeah, and leashes. I mean, I don't understand why people uh, have a resistance. Some people have a resistance to putting on their leash. And I'm like, it's so easy. Just stick it on. You know, make it a habit. Every single You don't even time. know it's there. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> So there's another interesting question because, you know, you see there's the leash police on Facebook and, uh, and on Instagram. And like every time, you know, there's, I don't know, it's quite interesting because there's some massive photo shoots in the Times or, or whatever, these big publications, newspapers who don't know anything about Stand Up Paddle. And they've got this gorgeous model on the front and no leash or PFD in sight. So do you actually screen photos for leashes and PFDs that appear in your magazine or, or no? So that's, that's a wonderful question, you know, and it's, we, we do, we oh, sort of caught out there by this one. So we do the best we can to, you know, always have that awareness. And at the same time, because we are often just, you know, we're using photographs of surfers and wing foilers and, you know, people who the leash requirement isn't, uh, necessary for you know like it, it does slip under the radar sometimes but when i post online i've definitely been called out by the the facebook police a thousand times you know and uh and i you know i do i guess i can say i do the best i can it's just it's uh, it's a tough one you know what i mean it's a tough one because there's an aesthetic about you know a beautiful person on a board who doesn't have that pfd strapped around her waist right or do you go with this other photo over here so you know, there's a little bit of flow in that. Um, I, you know, I, personally, I do the best I can to to always be talking about safety with you know my clients and my um, my staff and my team. Uh, the magazine itself, mm, we, do, you know, again, we're 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 playing a fine line there of of sort of aesthetic versus precaution. So yeah. 
Or as guilty as anybody else, I think, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Um, now, we, we, we mentioned this before, that the vast majority of people are leisure paddlers. So what is a leisure paddler exactly? For, for me, I think it's, you know, when I go down to the water at sunset uh, here in East Hampton, there are families who come down and they bring their boards and it's just part of their beach experience. You know, they just like to sort of push the board off the beach and they tool around maybe with the kid on the front or the dog on the board and they don't go very far, right? They just sort of stay within a certain radius of their towel and blanket, you know? And and so that's like the first level of, you know, a, a, a recreational paddler. And and then there are people who get a little bit more uh, experienced, a little bit more spunky about it, who like to push off and go on some kind of an excursion, you know, whether that's, you know, a couple of miles or up and down the coast or what have you. Um, they sort of, they do an out and back, right? They're able to just paddle a distance and then come back to where they started. And and it's more of a, um, you know, more of a fitness routine, you know, just a little bit more of that is mixed in there. And, you know, and then people, as they move into, you know, sort of, you know, intermediate paddling, you know, maybe begin to experience things like downwinders or getting out on the ocean or doing like deliberate longer uh, longer paddle excursions, you know, four miles, five miles, because of the the beauty and the energy that that brings, you know, I mean, that's now that's, we're definitely into more of a fitness oriented individual. Um, but let's say they're not even racing, they just love the experience of going on a longer journey. And, uh, you know, and those people, those people, I almost feel like, you know, between the people who do like two to three miles and the four to five milers, like that's the bulk of stand up paddling today, right? Most people have been on boards long enough that they're able to sort of have a, a greater experience, a more challenging experience. And uh, it's great to, it's great been great to see that growth to witness that happen. Yeah. I love the way you lay that out. That's brilliant. And then I think the next level would be people going because i wrote an article for you on micro adventures which um is quite that. an interesting yeah. term yeah um do you see many people doing one night or, or multi-day sub trips do you think that's true in the usa i know it's massive here in europe everyone's doing these long trips and things i think it's bigger in europe than it is here in the united states um and i don't i you know i don't know why you know because i think there's so many incredible places for people to paddle here i also know like canada has they do week-long excursions and you know i have several several of our writers and photographers up there are always sending us incredible images you know of those types of uh of those types of stories and and i don't know i don't know nick maybe maybe it's up to me like maybe i'll i'll start doing that yeah (laughs) start a trend go for it (laughs) why not and bring people with me i mean i love the northeast so much like i love where i lived so much that um it would be pure it would be pure heaven to do, I could do an island chain crossing from here, right? Like tip along Island to Rhode Island to Cape Cod. Like it's all possible. So yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll just uh, call up my buddy Norm Hahn up there in, uh, in, in Canada and see if he wants to do like a multi Island chain crossing and just have fun with it and invite people to come for one leg or two legs or all of it. Not a bad idea. I remember quite some time back, there were two girls, I think they worked for um, Manhattan kayak. Um, yes. and they, they paddled all the way down 
um, the East Coast, all the way down to Florida, yes. or all the way up. I can't remember which, but um, that was an amazing trip to follow. Yeah, they, that was um, Luann Harris and uh, and Jules uh, Gizmondi, and the two of them are uh, legends. You know, to all of us here in New York, you know, they did that, and then recently Luann uh, did the. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to get it wrong. The Mississippi River. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Anyway, she did it all by herself. You know, so wow. she she is somebody who is who's continued along that vein. Um, who was she that Jules? No, it wasn't Jules. It was Luann. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but she did. You know, she did it. She was out there for four and a half months by herself. Wow. It was incredible. I, mean, you know, yeah. I just did a trip and it took us four days. I don't know how I could handle four months. She's a rock star. <laughs> she's she's a beast and a rock star, and we love her so much. Yeah. So separate retreats are possibly the best holiday one can have. What does that industry look like in the USA? Because there's a lot of that going on here in in, in the UK and Europe. Um, are they sort of more paddle surf orientated and take place down in Costa Rica, Puerto Rico, or are there more options further north in the US? Um, there's definitely a big uh, audience for stand-up paddle retreats. Um, I've hosted, you know, two dozen in my in my time, and and they are what I've found. What's what works are there's two different kinds. Like one is to take people down to an event in the Caribbean somewhere and set up a retreat for the week leading up to the event, right? So to have a race training retreat that culminates in a stand-up paddle race in some beautiful place. And then I've also, uh, you know, experienced and hosted retreats where it's just strictly sup surfing. I don't see that flatwater paddlers, many of them are, are sort of, if they don't want to learn how to surf, like they're not going to learn how to surf, you know, they just don't want to put themselves into that uh, environment. So mixing the two has never really been something I've seem, you know, seen as successful. But um, I also, there's sup yoga retreats, like people go away and they just practice yoga on their boards for a week and do some, you know, leisure paddling. And um, they're super popular, you know, but are there, are they here in the Northeast? Um, again, I haven't seen that, but I, I have something cooking that I'm hoping to do in Rhode Island next year. So we'll, we'll see how that all pans out. So we've got to watch that space. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And I just, we, we mentioned downwinding a little bit earlier because I'm just trying to sort of talk a little bit about sup styles and, and, and show people that there's so many different things to do in a stand up paddleboard. But are people still downwinding? Because it seems to be taken over or um, usurped by, by foiling. But are people still downwinding? Absolutely. I mean, I think downwinding is, you know, sort of where the adrenaline seekers go in stand up paddling and, and not everybody, not everybody is going to jump to foiling. Um, so downwinding is still, it's still popular here in the States. I mean, I, you know, there's events and races and experiences all over the place. Uh, you know, we do one every year from Montauk Point to Block Island, uh, which is a, I think it's a no, it's an 18 mile open ocean crossing. And, and that's, it's just extraordinary, you know? So again, it's, it's an upper, that's more of an advanced level paddler. And, and, you know, we need to cultivate those people, you know, we need to, in my experience, you know, like get people out on the water and challenge them in different conditions and show them, them that they, they have the skill and, and teach them new skills. So they feel safe 
so they're able to leave shore and do something like a downwind experience. Um, but I, I still see it, absolutely. Yeah, because it's certainly a special experience. I love it myself. Me too. Really yeah, me too. There's so much to do in stand-up paddle, and, there's, and it's a really great time for stand-up paddle right now as well. So exciting times. Where Where is the best place for us to follow you online, Evan? Well, um, you know, certainly at standupjournal.com, right? It's just www.standupjournal.com. That is our uh, our blog website where we just try and keep, you know, recent news updates. You know, it gets updated several times a week and, and uh, athlete interviews, things like that. And then also certainly our social media, both Instagram and Facebook is at standupjournal, all one word. Um can find us there. My personal Instagram is at NY surf girl. And I just try and show, you know, the experience of, of living here on the tip of an Island in New York, which is, you know, as a water lover, you know, which is amazing. Uh, and what else? And, oh, and also on the website, you can find our, our subscription link uh, to receive the print magazine. And again, that is shipped globally and we're more than happy to do that for people. Great. Well, thanks, Evelyn, and I really appreciate your time, and um, it was really, really fun chatting to you. So thanks so much for, for telling us all about Stand Up Journal. It's an exciting place to be. Nick, it's an honor to be on the SUPFM broadcast. I'm really, I'm really excited to be here, and I just deep thanks to you and Simon for creating something that carries so much you know, information and education and energy for the sport. It's, it's really nice to connect with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SUP FM, the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then, we'll see you on the water.